old team member now, but she held the grudge with key information. The information includes a form for confidentiality. I went out walking through streets paved with gold. Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it. Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you. I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter live uh, on their television, they can go to hotm.tv online, click on the streaming video, and watch from anywhere in the world. I Was a Born Again Mormon is out of print. You may be able to find it at some local bookstores, but until we get the third edition back out, uh, it, will be, uh, it will be a few months probably, we'll have to see. Um, remember, we meet every Sunday afternoon for a Bible study class at 2.30 at the U of U, and then at 7 p.m. at Utah State. Go to www.calvarycampus.com for more information. Additionally, we have the Ezekiel Project that will begin Wednesday night, May 6th in Ogden. It'll be going verse by verse, I think. Uh, they're starting in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. You can go to calvarycampus.com or to the uh, www.ezekielproject.tv for times and locations. An important part of our ministry is to offer verse-by-verse -verse Bible study, Bible courses throughout the state. We hope you'll take advantage of it. You're probably not aware that uh, Aletheia Ministries has a very simple, we have always had this kind of mission statement. It's not really a mission statement, and it's, but it's to reach, teach, and serve. And in Los Angeles, California, there uh, is a place called the Dream Center, started a number of years ago. And the Dream Center gathers donations and then distributes them out to the needy community at large. In 2000, a man named Alfred Murillo and his wife, Anna Murillo, came to Utah and planted the Utah Dream Center here in the state, which does a lot of things, but it does this very thing. It, it takes donations in food, in clothing, uh, in the essentials of, of life, and then they distribute it out to people who are in need. So as a means to uh, uh, reach one of our goals of our ministry, and that's to reach, teach, and serve, we want to promote the Utah Dream Center as kind of an extension of some service that we can do uh, by, through the way we can help. So we want to tell you about the Dream Center. It is uh, at 1624 South, 1000 West, 1624 South, 1000 West in Salt Lake City. Now, there are viable alternatives out there to giving in the state of Utah. There are other places, but the biggest place is Deseret Industries, which is LDS owned. And that is a whole uh, institution in and of itself, which someday we're going to address. But we hope that the Christians of the community will uh, help uh, Alfred and Anna in the Dream Center by taking the things that they no longer need or can use and taking them to the Dream Center. When you do that is any Tuesday from 8 in the morning till noon. They receive donations of furniture, clothing, foodstuffs, whatever it is. And then also on Tuesday from noon to 3, they turn around and they distribute that back out to the community and uh, for people who are in need. And so it's a wonderful system, and we hope that you'll support the Dream Center, Alfred Murillo, in this cause. Uh, we'll be adding the website, their location, to our website if it's not already done. We ended it last week with a call from a guy who uh, 
He challenged my teaching about the thief on the cross as being evidence that baptism is not necessary for his salvation because Jesus had not yet ascended to the Father, which was in heaven. And, and so, therefore, from his LDS mind, what he was trying to infer was that when Jesus said to the thief uh, on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, that this was not heaven. And because it was not heaven or where the Father was, we should not think the thief went to heaven. Uh, by making this argument, the caller was trying to build a case that the thief on the cross would then have to remain in a state absent from God for eternity unless somebody performed a vicarious baptism for him in a LDS temple. And then that work being done, he would then have, have the baptism requirement accomplished and then he would be able to enter where uh, uh, God is. And this was the guy's tacit argument. By making this argument, it would support the LDS erroneous belief that one, baptism is necessary for salvation, and two, if you die without hearing the gospel and being baptized, you can have a chance to receive this, ba this baptism, which is necessary, through the LDS vicarious work for the dead. Now, when Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, the word liter literally refers to a beautiful garden. That's, that's, that's pretty much what it meant. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, it uses the word paradise with the word Eden. In fact, you could read in Genesis 2 where it says, God planted a paradise in Eden. That's exactly how it's translated in the Septuagint. And the word came to denote a place of blessed happiness, especially blessed happiness after this world. The Romans had a place in their myths that was called Elysium, and the Greeks had their gardens of Hesperides. I think I'm saying that right. Probably not. But the Paradisos, that's the paradise, is the blessed abode in the Persian language. Okay? Now, the, the dead prior to Jesus ascending to his father, the dead, the faithful dead who died, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, all the prophets of old, and anyone who had uh, the faith requisite to not go to the hellish part of Sheol, went to paradise. So this, was, this is the doctrine. This is the, what the Bible teaches. Prior to Jesus, uh, propitiation and atonement for all sin, shedding his blood and his ascension, Everybody who was faithful prior to that went to Sheol. Sheol consisted of two places, a bad place, which we would be hell, and a good place, which would be paradise or heaven. Jesus talked about this when he gives a parable about a rich man and Lazarus. And he says the rich man went to Abraham's bosom, which was a comparative to paradise or heaven. And the rich man went to hell and asked for the water. When Jesus cleared the way and his blood cleansed the way and that way uh, the departed could abode with the father permanently when his blood was shed, then paradise became heaven. There, there was no difference. It was, it was a restful, beautiful place, but now they could enter into the presence of the father. There is nobody sitting in paradise waiting for vicarious works to be done by the Catholic Church or the Mormon Church or anybody other religion that does vicarious ordinance work. Abraham, Isaiah, Daniel, David, none of them had to receive the vicarious ordinance of baptism from an LDS person in a temple in order to go to be with God. In fact, paradise is used as heaven in Scripture. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 3-4, I knew such a man, whether in the body I cannot tell, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for man to utter. That paradise, paradisios, is what Jesus told the thief on the cross is where he was going to go. In Revelation 2.7, listen to this verse. It says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. It's the same paradisio that Jesus used with the thief on the cross. Um, within the context and whole body of scripture, uh, we 
No, we get the true teaching of where the departed went who were on earth prior to Christ's death and resurrection and then what happened once that gap, was, that gulf was filled by his blood and they all go directly to heaven. Uh, there's no waiting, no work for them to be done. You know, it is, it's pretty easy to take any passage of scripture and create a fable out of it. You and I could probably sit down and pick any passage and dream up some kind of fable to go along with it if we wanted. And this is why it is so important to let the Bible interpret itself and not let man. I have never witnessed a healing uh, uh, in my life in, in terms of a miraculous healing. In fact, I've been very, very dubious suspect of miracles in my Christian walk until this week. Uh, a Christian man named Balthazar Rizzo was working uh, in his home, I think it was his home, when he had a massive heart attack. Balthazar would often attend Calvary Campus Logan with his 13-year-old son, Thomas. He was found in his kitchen with no pulse. They don't know how long he was there. They're thinking 10 minutes uh, laying there before any kind of CPR was started. And then he was air vac to an Ogden hospital uh, and placed on life support. On my way home from Logan Bible study last week, I stopped in at the hospital to see him and his family, and I learned that many, many Christians from his uh, church up in Logan had been praying night and day for Balthazar. Uh, I learned from his wife that the doctors did not give him much hope, especially the neurologist who said if he survives, he will be seriously brain damaged. Uh, Thomas took me up to see his dad in, in the room that night, and I stood over a man that was attached to more monitors and gizmos than I have ever seen in my life, and he was not there, as far as I could tell. It was breathing for him. He was monitoring everything. I put my hand on his arm when we prayed for him, and he was cold as the clay. And uh, after we prayed, I looked at his 13-year-old son and I said, what do you think if your dad was standing here with you, Thomas, what would your dad tell you about someone that you love laying in the hospital bed? And this 13-year-old kid looks at me and he says, to trust God. So there's a lot of faith going up there. Profound and powerful words from a 13-year-old boy. Two nights ago when I returned to Logan to teach our Bible study, uh, I learned that Balthazar on Thursday sat up and started talking in complete sentences without a skip. And he um, absolutely has completely and fully recovered to the point that uh, on Sunday morning he typed out this letter. And I'm going to read it. It says, It is 6 a.m. on Sunday morning and I can't help but think of you. At this time I am doing very well and the doctors have a couple more tests to check the condition of my heart. Uh, they'll send me home sometime next week. What a ride. It went from we do not know if he's going to make it to if he makes it, he will have brain damage. Obviously, they did not factor in the power of God and the power of prayer. I don't know for sure how many people were praying for me, but many, many from all over the world sounds like a reasonable number. The results of this was an amazing recovery. The doctors could not believe it. Their, res uh, their response was, we have never seen anybody in your condition recover this quick. I kept telling them it was a miracle from God, and they looked at me dumbfounded. Dear brothers and sisters, let our prayers and worshiping God continue in our church as we have been doing. I love you and thank you for all you have done for me and my family. He puts a note at the end. The song that kept coming to my mind during my recovery was, I will praise you in the storm from Casting Crows, Crowns. Uh, I just want you to know, audience, there was no priesthood involved here in this healing. There was no one going and, and, and calling out the Melchizedek uh, false priesthood or anything else. All that was done, which was a lot, was people exercising their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to heal this man and their prayers were heard. Last week, we introduced a recipe for a food we called Mormon cake. We're going to get to that after we have a prayer. Lord, we come to you and we praise you for the work that you do that you open our eyes to your strength and show us constantly how wonderful and magnificent, powerful, trustworthy, righteous, and worthy you are when we are not. 
So we pause and praise you for this. We pray that you will be with our uh, audience, wherever they may be. We pray you'll be with our uh, volunteers, our camera people, our technicians, and those who are struggling. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, quickly, let me give you the ingredients uh, again, and uh, we'll go from there. The first being the fallacious initial construct, which states that there is one true physical church on the face of the earth. This is the first ingredient of Mormon cake. The second ingredient, which we talked about last week, was that this true church was then lost to a worldwide apostasy. Then this true church was restored back to earth through a man named Joseph Smith. Shows 6, 9, and 10 from 2000 cover the supposed first vision of Joseph Smith. Check that out and you can hear some great details. With this unneeded restoration of a, of a false premise church, so the only true church on the face of the earth, makes up for the fourth ingredient, which is that with this restored uh, church, this false priesthood was restored too. This is where we left off last week. For more information about that, shows 40 and 41 of 2006 and shows 21 of 2007 cover this supposed restoration of these priesthoods. The fifth ingredient for Mormon cake is that with this restored priesthood came prophets and apostles. So we're going to cover that and the rest of the ingredients tonight. Now, when the LDS say they have a prophet, they mean that they have a man who is like Moses, okay? And that he receives revelation for the whole world, actually, the whole world. Joseph Smith claimed to be the first prophet. Brigham Young did not want to be considered a prophet. He even said it, and we have the quotes to prove that. But uh, Thomas S. Monson is now kind of stepped back into Joseph's mantle of being a prophet and claims that he is the prophet for the entire world. Because of time and the fact that we've covered this before, you can check it out. Show 38 of 2006, show 20 of 2008. We'll go into the details of this claim, but the Bible sufficiently handles this issue. One scripture, let me read it to you. One scripture only. There are dozens. I have them in my once Bible. It says in Hebrews 1.1, God who at sundry times and in many ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Okay, you got it right there. Hebrews New Testament points it out. Times past, prophets, Moses. These days by his son. How can you call Monson a prophet in the face of God's word like this? I don't know. Then there's the ludicrous claim of 12 apostles, okay? Now, show 19 of 2008 covers this topic in depth too. But aside from all the biblical texts that prove that they are not apostles like the apostles that Jesus had, I want to know one thing in the, when we're talking about the recipe. Have they ever seen Jesus Christ? And if they have, why don't they proclaim this to the world the way the 12 apostles did in Jesus' time, even to the loss of their life? They were not hesitant, reticent, reserved in claiming what Jesus had taught them. This is what the apostles were, special witnesses who had firsthand knowledge and had the ability to write the Gospels and uh, write some of the Gospels and write the rest of the New Testament. Why don't these apostles now stand up and say, I am a firsthand witness of Jesus Christ? They won't because they aren't. The sixth ingredient, and there's 13, which uh, we have labeled the true seasoning of all this, states that a person can know the truthfulness of all these things by feelings which exist outside of biblical truth. Again, we talked ad nauseum on the show about the LDS way of knowing truth and how unreliable it is. Show 7 of, of, and 41 in 2007 were all about the trappings of knowing and feeling. That shows 7 and 41 of 2007. But let me summarize by comparing the uh, epistemology, that's how we know things, the Christian epistemology versus the LDS epistemology. You've heard me do this before. Christian epistemology is we have a train and the engine uh, is facts. Okay? That is the engine pulling the train. Behind that train are cars and that car, those cars are uh, elements of faith. Facts, pulling faith, pulling feelings. 
Christians don't say feelings aren't important. You'll hear Christians refer to feelings all the time. But those feelings do not exist in and of themselves, nor are they the things that drive the train. They are at the caboose, okay? We look at facts. God does not want us. He's never asked us to believe in a vacuum. That's why he sent his son. He could have just sent down a paper that said, your sins have been atoned for. And we would have to believe it. He's never wanted us to believe in a vacuum. He could have had the uh, Jerusalem sink like the city of Atlantis and we never would ever see any archaeological evidence if he wanted us to believe in a vacuum. But he doesn't. He gives us all kinds of evidences of his existence in the cosmos, on earth, written on our hearts, in his living word, through his son. All kinds of evidence, archaeological evidence, tons of it for you to have fact to then establish your faith and then to, at the caboose have feelings toward those things. The LDS, flip it. The train that is being pulled by feelings. Feelings first. Then by faith in those feelings and then facts are the last thing. In fact, there are things being said today that say, hey, facts don't even matter. We don't even care about the facts. They have to say that in light of everything that's going on with the Book of Mormon and evidences. So we have an absolute switch of the, of the cars of the train. And that is not how God expects you to uh, believe. In fact, the LDS way of doing it really does fall into Nietzsche's uh, definition of faith, which, means, which was faith means not wanting to know the truth. That's how Nietzsche, the atheist, described faith. And in the Mormon's perspective, the way they view faith, to me, that seems like the same thing. Don't forget Hebrews 11, no, uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, yeah. Hebrews 11.1, 1, that says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And that hope is not, oh, it's I'm waiting for it. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Evidence of things not seen. <laughs> All right, the seventh ingredient, it's a beautiful one. They have provided their membership in the Mormon cake mix with certain certainties that are not existent in the Bible. These include man-made answers to where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Mormonism tells you without hesitation that you lived eternally before coming to earth, that you were a spirit child of, of God, uh, the father and his heavenly mother wife, and that you had a spirit brother named Jesus and he, and we had a, who did the right things, and you had a spirit brother named Lucifer who did the wrong things, and they tell you just, just this is something you can be certain of. And so you buy into the fable. It tells you that there were sacred books written on golden plates buried in a hill by Joseph Smith. It tells you there was a, a, a papyrus taken out of dummy, uh, mummies that, uh, th that were translated. And they had nothing to do with what Joseph Smith said they did. They tell you and they give you all kinds of certainty. The age a child should be baptized. All the certainty. And so it just, it just fills every gap that you would have. And you say, wow, I, I, I believe. I do believe through your feelings through your own mind, not through facts, faith, and feelings. Then we have the eighth ingredient of Mormon cake, which is a whipped up legacy of persecution. And they are still playing this card like no other. It is so hyped up and inflated, so taken out of historical context that you think there was a Mormon Holocaust the way they talk about it. I have long asked and still ask, how many actual Latter-day Saints, faithful Latter-day Saints, lost their lives due to martyrdom, per, uh, death persecution? How many? 50? 100? Maybe? Most? 100? In addition with that question, how many lives were taken by the LDS? as they sojourn through Joseph Smith all the way to the present day. How many people have been killed by members of the LDS church? Put this on the scales against true Christian believers. Now I say that true, and that's important. First of all, no true Christian would ever take the life of another person in the name of Jesus Christ, okay? Second, millions upon millions upon millions of people, Christians, have lost their lives because of faith. Millions and millions and millions. Not a hundred, not 50, not 25, millions upon millions. And why did they lose their life? For Jesus Christ alone, not for their religion, not in support of the church that they go to, in support of their faith in Christ as God. 
Do you see the difference? You put your faith in supporting a church, an institution, you're no different in losing your life to it than a Nazi would be losing it to the Third Reich. You know, I, my dad lost his life in the war because he was fighting for the Nazis. You know, it's terrible. You know, and it's the same, it's the same thing. All right? Hundreds of thousands of Christians are in prison today, today, right now, hundreds of thousands imprisoned uh, because of their faith. In North Korea, kill, uh, Kim Jong-il, he is a horrible opponent to Christianity. Um, one of the worst repressors of Christians. Uh, they say that an average of 150,000 people die every year worldwide because they believe in Christ. Uh, there's no comparison here, and yet this place, they trump up and they whip up their persecution complex like no other. Okay, then we go to ingredient number nine, which states that if you want to be accepted by God, there are a number of attendant duties and observances you have to keep to be worthy. And then you, gotta, you can hear the chains starting to clink down the hall and, and the shackles being put on your feet at this point, because now you have to do things to be a member of this church, a worthy member, and it's important to be worthy. So it's everything from Sabbath day to paying tithing to what you eat and drink to how you look to what you, uh, you let your children do to what schools you go to. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. There's a hierarchy, there's levels of it, and all in order to be pleasing to God, all in order to have eternal life. Okay, this is where the, the mix truly goes off from being a Christian batter to a Mormon batter. And then 10 states that you're calling to do all that you're told to do, that you actually, by observing these things, become worthy. They will label you. You are worthy. And you get to go into their house of God restored here uh, for you to go in and do all kinds of rites and rituals that are essential to living with God again and are essential for you to become a God. Now, again, we cover these, this false restored temple in shows 36, 37, 39, and 40 in 2007 and in show 16 in 2006. Bottom line, however, the temple that was around with the Jews in the Old Testament has nothing to do with the temple or the temple works that the uh, Christians, uh, that the Mormons, used today. Uh, bottom line, when Jesus died, God himself tore the veil of the temple top to bottom, ripped it top to bottom to say, this is it. Temple stuff is done. Until the Jews do their own deal with God has a specific covenant promise with them. But with, with as far as the Gentiles and anybody else ripped in half, guess who tacked it back up? Joseph Smith. He put the veil back up and you guys are going through something that God himself ripped down. Then we have the 11th ingredient that states by being worthy to go into this temple, then you also can have your spouse sealed to you and your family sealed to you for time and all eternity. Okay, so now the, now the batter's getting thick, man. It's almost getting ready to cook. And now you, because of all this stuff, you can have your wife or your husband with you for all eternity and your little children sealed to you for time and all eternity. Another construct of man. Nowhere is it found in the Bible. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus says, they, in heaven they are not married, nor are they given in marriage. Jesus says in the Bible, uh, the people of this world marry. That's what he said. Did you know that? Check it out. Look it up. You'll see. Uh, so... Then we get to the 12th point, and it's when someone says, you know, none of this stuff's in the Bible. None of this stuff that you're proposing to us is in the Bible. And this, part, this, this 12th part of the recipe is you can't trust the Bible. You know, it's, you, can't, you can't put your faith in that. You can watch in 2006, shows 5 and 20. In 2007, show 2. In 2008, show 49, 50, 51, and 52. All about the trustworthiness of the Bible. All about how you can look to that as a reliable thing. You know, the world will tell you, don't read the Bible. Don't study the Bible. It is not trustworthy. It's not right. Every cultic leader on earth will take the Bible and they'll bastardize it. They'll change it. They'll say you can't trust it or only they have the right interpretation of it. Every single one of them will demean the Bible, but not God. He wants you to trust that book. That's his manual. These other things are the product and manuals of men. So, after they give you this, you get to the 13th point, and that is, well, since you can't trust the Bible, have we got some other books you need to look at? Have we got some other revelations you need to think about? And so they've got you to not believe in the Bible, and they get you to believe in the stuff that men have created from their own imaginations, and uh, to do their religious rites and everything else. Take all of this, mix it up, whip, whip it up into a nice batter, 
and then take your mix and bake it in a special Jesus is not enough oven. And there you got it. There is the grand Mormon cake. It's a cooking. It's available only through religions made up by the constructs of men. You see, these ovens are the only ones equipped to properly cook all these false ingredients together in one tasty little sinister cake. And because when the heat of the Jesus is not enough oven fires up, it is endless, it is relentless, and it is torrential. It, in the Jesus is not enough oven, the fire is never quenched. The smoke ascends up forever and ever. And the worms will ultimately make their way into this Mormon cake and eat it up. And you'll be eating those things with it if you trust in anything that says Jesus is not a, enough. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Uh, before we do that, we're going to go to a two-minute spot. It's very important to the ministry. I hope you'll take a second and listen to it. Hi, my name is Sean McCraney. I'm the host of Heart of the Matter and the founder of Aletheia Ministries. Uh, when my wife and I started Aletheia Ministries about six years ago, we underwrote all the expenses ourselves. Over the course of time, many of you have unsolicited uh, come alongside of us and supported us, and we thank you so much uh, for doing that. Uh, however, we've reached a point in the ministry where actually by the end of June of this year, uh, Aletheia Ministries, uh, heart of the matter, will cease to exist because of our financial situation. We can no longer subsidize the expenses ourselves. So uh, I really hate doing this. If you've watched the show, you know we are not about uh, money and finances. We've been on three years and we've never ever uh, done that and tried to solicit you to, your funds. But what we would like you to uh, at least consider is to partner up with us, become a Heart of the Matter partner, H-O-T-M partner. And um, our board of directors have come up with this plan, so to speak, to come alongside God in this ministry and, um, and help us bring more people to the a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our ministry has seen an abundance of fruit, and we've seen many people come uh, to the Lord as a result of God's ministry here uh, in Utah. And so we just want to introduce to you the HOTM Partners concept. Uh, you can go call 888-868-HOTM. That's 888-868-4686. It's a toll-free number. And you can get uh, ask, leave a message, or speak to an operator and get a brochure on how to become a partner. Or you can go online, www.hotm.tv, and become a partner right there online. So we need you now. It's urgent. And I know all television ministries say that, but it is. And we place this in God's hands and yours. God bless you. So I want you to know we ran that for the first time last week, and uh, we've had a very good initial response. We appreciate those of you who have stepped up. And I, I just want to make a point here. Many of you are not in a position to become partners. There's some parameters to becoming a partner, and you look at those parameters and you say, well, we just can't do that. And we completely and totally understand. If the Lord puts it on your heart to help us in any way, we appreciate it. But if you'd like to be a partner, we'd like that too. And uh, so just check that out at that number that, was, that I read off or uh, through the website, and we just go from there. Okay, listen, we have uh, Eric, first-time caller from Sandy. Eric, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm doing well, Eric. How are you? Good. Um, my question tonight is I came across a uh, cartoon on YouTube, and it says it was banned by the Mormon Church. And I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but um, it goes over and it starts talking about an Elohim. A what? Elohim. Elohim. Yeah. Yeah. And I've never, I've lived in Utah for 13 years, and I've been around a lot of LDS folks, and I've never heard that person mentioned before. Yeah. And they were just going into saying how he was the, the Mormon god, and then he, um, you know, had relations with all these other wives, and it goes, so, it goes into it. It's all it talks about is planets and just a lot of weird stuff. And I was just wondering, you know, this particular cartoon that I saw, is that roughly a true story or? Yeah, it's, it's pretty close uh, what I watched on it. It's pretty humorous the way it's done. Uh, but Elohim, Joseph Smith, uh, 
I call him a great synthesizer. I mean, he could, he could pull out anything and make it religion. And uh, he learned a little bit of Hebrew. He actually had some Hebrew instruction. And uh, in Hebrew, the word Elohim means God. But it's a title for God that is generic. It is any God is an Elohim. And Joseph took it and he reconstructed it to mean that that is God's personal name. That it's Elohim the Father, or Elohim whatever God's last name might be. Since he was once a man, he probably had one of those as well. But his first name is Elohim, according to Joseph Smith. And Joseph got that name for God from, from his study of Hebrew. But the problem is the name for God is not spoken. And it's the tetragrammaton. And it's those four, four letters that are all uppercase. And we don't know what consonants go between them. We pronounce it uh, Yahweh. But we're not sure. And that is God's personal name that even the Jews won't speak or write. And, and Elohim is just another bit, I mean... In the realm of um, Christian apologetics and true Bible scholars, that is a laughable thing right there. But that is what they're calling God the Father's personal name. Okay, and when they speak about many different planets and so forth, what, I mean, are they, is that their idea of their individual heavens? or? Yeah, Joseph Smith taught that, that matter cannot be created nor destroyed. By, even by God, and so there has been an eternal uh, kind of uh, revolving progression of creation of planets and galaxies and universes and on and on and on and on, and there's, with that has been an eternal regression of God's. God the Father, Elohim that we know, the Mormons say, had a father who had a father who had a father, and all of them populated different worlds or planets or or universes, and, and it's this big, grand, eternal scheme, which fits right in with the Mormon cake, because it's just totally the fabrication of, a, of the mind of a man. I mean, uh, what's the guy who did Scientology? Uh, yeah, I can't think of his name. Right Hubbard, now. yeah, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, Hubbard, a science fiction writer, L. Ron Hubbard. He came up with a grand scheme, too, and everybody buys into it. It makes a lot of really, really fantastic sense to them. But, you know, it's not the Word of God, and you're right, though, that that's where all those uh, planets come from, is from Mormonism, and the cartoon is correct. Okay, and because then they went into, like, spiritual children and how we were, supposedly we were all um, little babies up in the, in the spirit world, and then we were chosen to come down. Yep, all Earth. that's right. All that's right. And everybody who has a body that's on earth today is going to be rewarded with a heaven because they went with Elohim's plan to come down and get a body to become like him. And so even the most vile person, Adolf Hitler, is going to go to a heaven level. I use him as just the kind of the, the model for evil. He's going to go to the lowest heaven level, which is a place Joseph Smith claims that if you could see it with your eyes, you would kill yourself to get there. Whew, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but this is all the teaching, you know, so uh, that's what they believe. And that's why they kind of have this demeanor uh, about them. Really, if they're talking with you and you're a Christian, it's like, it's okay. We love you and you're, you're going to be fine. And if you don't accept the gospel, well, we want you to. Because if you did, you would be able to go to the celestial kingdom. And if you just believe in Jesus, you're going to get to go to the terrestrial where Jesus dwells, but not the Father. And if you are just a bad guy all around, murder, liar, adulterer, thief, you get to go to the lowest kingdom. So that's okay. why they're all pretty, everything's cool, baby. Okay. Well, that makes so much sense because I've, ran across so many people in the business world in Salt Lake that um, they seem to have a bit of like, uh, like they're a bit of a godlike yeah. over those who are non-LDS below them. And yeah. So that, that really helps explain a lot of that. Excellent, Eric. Thanks for the call. Well, thank you. Bye okay, bye. bye. We're going to Michael in Midvale, first time caller. Michael, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi, Michael. Uh, is this Sean? This is. Hey, Sean. <laughs> Hey, first of all, thanks for taking my call. I really enjoy your program. Oh, thanks. Uh, I got a question for you. I'm <laughs> I'm about ninety nine percent out of Mormonism. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and I'll are you still you wearing a tie? What's that? Are you still wearing a tie? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm not. So anyway. Um, the question I have, is, I'll tell you about the 1% that still kind of has me tentacled, if you will. Okay. Um, 
and that's really, I, I guess it's, you know, it's the Book of Mormon. Um, when I, when I read the Book of Mormon, and again, you know, I, I, I read it, and, and in the back of my mind, I sit there and go, how could this guy who had like a sixth grade education come up with this? Yeah. And then about two minutes later, I read the Doctrine and Covenants, and I read section 132, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm out of it again, you know, but, uh, but it's that Book of Mormon component, and that, that's one piece. And then the other piece uh, was, is, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm having been raised LDS, having that authority, uh, you know, you're kind of ingrained with, uh, you know, you need to have an authoritative uh, resource out there to kind of settle disputes, like on homosexuality or, or and so on. And, and when I look at some of the faiths out there that have, that allow that kind of thing or, you know, those kinds of things. I guess that it comes back to, the whole, you know, there's like two major religions that have an authority. One is the Mormon Church, the other is the Catholic Church. How, how did you, how do you deal with stuff like that? Your, your questions are really good. And let me just take them in reverse. First thing about the authority. The, uh, the groups like with top-down authority have always... Uh, uh, managed religion better than the uh, loosely net Christian church. And, and there's a reason for that. Uh, you know, if you want to make it in the arms of men and you want to have men that you can look to for answers for things, then, then you would go to something like these churches that have the top-down authority. I mean, the Christian church, the body of Christ, could learn some things from the, from the groups that are considered cults. Because they have such good structure, and that structure makes religion and, and things very easy, and it gives you answers that you have to really struggle for outside of it. But remember Jesus and how he established his church. He had a guy in Mark chapter 9 say to his, you know, he was casting out devils in his name, and his apostles got really mad, and he said, hey, leave him alone. If he's not against us, he's for us, you know. And it was very loosely knit, and, and it was open to everybody. And that diversity, there's a cost to it. For people yeah. to be able to worship and live and think of Christ and God in the way that the Bible speaks to them, there's a kind of a cost to that. That's my one answer for your last question. The first question on the Book of Mormon. Coming out of Mormonism is a lifelong process for some people. For me, I've pretty much, I'm 99.999 out of it, but every now and then I'll think it's Sunday and I shouldn't go into the store. So I do have some things that are still tied. But... A couple things about the Book of Mormon. One, I challenge you, Michael, go back and watch our shows on the Book of Mormon. There are seven or eight parts, and we go through and show how, how he did it. Um, when I read Les Miserables, uh, uh, Victor Hugo's book, it inspires me to no end because it is, it is riddled with Christian themes. The Book of Mormon has plenty of good, solid Christian themes because it was primarily a Christian work of the 19th century Joseph Smith put together. How he did it, whether his father helped him, Oliver Cowdery, Sidney Rigdon, his wife, we or him alone. Let's say it was him alone. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Hobbit when he was in his teens. You can be a fanciful, creative person. Yes, his education was low, but his intelligence was massive. He wasn't some hayseed. His parents were both educators. You can look also at the sources that he used to put the book together, primarily the Bible. So when you read that, Michael, of course you're going to resonate with good feelings to it because it is using God's word within the text of a fictional story. So in time, the way that's going to help you most, I believe, in overcoming these things and beginning to see the light is to study the Bible. By the time you get to the end of it, you will then your eyes will be like, wow, now I get it. Oh. Great answers on both questions. Thanks, man. Yeah, What's that? Thanks for watching the show. You bet. Thank you. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to Colin in Provo, first-time caller. Colin, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, great. Uh, thank you for your show. I really appreciate uh, the courage that you have to get on, the, on this Utah TV station and say the things you say. Courage or stupidity. Uh, I had a question for you Okay. Uh, about someone that I really love and care for. They have some serious doubts about the LDS Church, and um, they've been through the temple and uh, felt that they've had spiritual experiences in the LDS Church, and now that they're doubting it and they've learned a lot of the history and such, they really can't get past the... Um, 
the fear of outer darkness mm. it haunts them you know they think of it all the time and they think of this dark place where there could be monsters or demons and they can't see their family and they can't see anyone and if they leave the church the mormon church they may have to experience it for eternity and it just scares them to death yeah um do you have any advice for them on how they could possibly get past that control and that fear that they're lost in right now well, you know, I'm an outer darkness uh, uh, person too, according to the Mormon Church. I'm and with you. What what helped what helped me, uh, Colin, is this: if I, as a man, have completely renounced the religion of my youth up till I was forty, Mormonism, and now fight against it in the name of Jesus, who I have been sold out to, who I love, I try to give my every day an hour to Him. I try to know him. I try to serve him and be obedient to him. Does that seem right that I will try to go and serve and love and my life has changed because of what Jesus has done for me that because I have renounced what Joseph Smith concocted, I'm going to be in a outer darkness? I trust Jesus far more in what he's promised than what Joseph Smith and Brigham tried to scare us with. So that is what helps me if, well, I don't need more, but if I used to think, oh, you know, I'm going to the outer darkness, and they really scare you with that your whole life, so it's normal for your friends to think that. But yeah. again, the answer is going to be for them long-term, getting into the Word, finding out more and more who Jesus is. Tell them not to worry about outer darkness right now. This is, these are like uh, curveballs that Satan throws at you to take your eyes off the Bible and Jesus. Tell them, okay, just leave outer darkness to God for a minute. Get in, read your Bible, stay on your knees, make war with the floor, and go, if they will, to a Christian church that preaches it. Down there in Provo, Christ Evangelical is a great one. That is my recommendation, and in time, they'll be angry at the fact that those guys have trapped them with this fear that if they leave this religion, they're going to be in this dark, dark place where no one can see, hear, feel, or smell. Okay, sounds good. All right, Colin, thank great you, call. Thank, thank you for your advice. All, All right, right. thank Thanks. Bye-bye. Uh -huh. We're going to Nelson in Salt Lake City. Hey, I really appreciate you guys. You have a good questions and first-time callers. Nelson, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, hello, yeah. Uh, I want to make a comment uh, about how the LDS Church, um, they call their prophets. Uh, you know, the, anyone who apparently is called by them to be a general authority is, is then a prophet, seer, and revelator. That's not how I read it when I read the Bible, especially in the, the 12th chapter in Numbers. Uh, God himself came down in a pillar of cloud in front of the tabernacle of the congregation and said that if, if he calls a man to be a prophet, he, the man will see him in a vision, and he will hear his voice in, in, in a dream. <laughs> and uh, that's how God calls people to be prophets. And then I, I checked after that. Every book in the Bible, every person who wrote in it, testifies that they saw God, either in a vision or, or in a dream. Huh. And then in the New Testament, you know, the, the people who wrote there, they all met the Savior personally, mm -hmm. who was God in the flesh. So it's, it's quite a bit different. They claim to be prophecies and revelators, but if you ask uh, one of the Mormon general authorities if they've seen them, they say, uh, God doesn't trust the blabbermouth. So that's their <laughs> convenient excuse. God doesn't trust them. I haven't heard that. Yeah, but that's that's how God calls people to be prophets. He he chooses them himself, and they took that away, and now they're saying that they call men, you know. But as far as I know, God didn't come down the pillar uh, of cloud, even to any of the Mormon pioneers or anyone, and tell them any different. Exactly. Yeah. Nelson, that's a really good point. Thanks for sharing that. I hadn't uh, thought of it, considered it, or knew it. That's really good. Thank you so much. Uh, I have one more uh, yeah. question. Uh, have you read uh, Martha Beck's book? She's Martha Nibley Beck, Hugh Nibley's daughter. Uh, uh, the one on her dad? Leaving Mormonism? No, I haven't read it. It's or been Leaving the Saints. Yeah, you, you might want to read it. She goes a lot into church history there. Does she? And it exposes a lot of the the faults uh, with Mormons. She is, went into it deeply herself, studying it. It's, yeah. it's, it's very eye-opening. Well, she's an excellent writer. I'll check that out. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. I okay, take care. The work you're doing. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Uh, we just lost Ryan, uh, but we're going to Marilyn in Idaho. Marilyn, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi, Marilyn. Hi, Sean. I uh, love the show. 
learn a lot. Uh, but I, I want to throw out a question to you. Yeah. Uh, the question would be, uh, the truth is the truth, correct? Yes, truth is truth. Truth is truth, cannot be changed, correct? Correct. Okay, if that be so, then logically, uh, I just here's the question. Uh, how many times has the Book of Mormon been edited? I don't know how many times it's been edited. I know that at utlm.org you can find out more of those statistics. I know there's been 3,513 changes in it. Correct. Yes. Doesn't that tell you that uh, the truth maybe isn't being presented correctly? I think that's a good assumption. It's a good point, Marilyn. Thank you, and uh, keep up the great work. I will... Uh, <laughs> I'll be watching. Thanks so Thank much. You. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Operators taking call. I'm going to read an email that absolutely floored me. And uh, to me, it's, it's, it's just awesome. And I'll tell you why. This person tormented me, our ministry, and people online for the past number of years. Uh, we're going to call his name Alex. Uh, it says, Sean, in a billion celestial kingdoms... I never ever thought I would be sending an email to you like this. I was a born in the covenant Mormon, 43 years, seminary grad, returned missionary, temple married and temple going with many, many callings, bishopric member, died in the wool, true blue Mormon until last year when I started watching Heart of the Matter on YouTube. I was your arch nemesis in 2008 through 2009. Me and another person used to go on YouTube all the time. My alias on YouTube was Alex. I would discount most of what you said as heresy. And in the beginning, I fought you at every turn. I probably posted over a thousand messages on YouTube against you. I did this because I was responding to the call of one of the general authorities to fight for the church on the internet. Like a true believing Mormon, I always blindly do what I am told. So I started on YouTube and I happened on your show. One day I heard you mention the magical peep stone and the hat that Joseph Smith used during the translation process of the Book of Mormon. You challenged viewers to look it up. I hadn't heard the details about this before, so I emailed FAIR, that's a, that's a Mormon apologetic group, and to their credit, they told me the truth about it. I thought, hmm, I wonder what else the church is hiding because they didn't tell me about this stuff in Sunday School Seminary and the MTC. To me, hiding stuff or sugarcoating facts is the same as lying for the Lord, baby. <laughs> That's him, not me. What a bizarre story. No wonder they leave us out this out in the missionary discussions. About this time, you did another episode on Joseph Smith's marriages to other women who were already married. And the way you said, does this really make sense to you that God would allow this of his prophet? Does this really seem reasonable to you? The way you said it really got to me. I kept hearing your words play in my mind over and over. I investigated this doctrine and well, and to my astonishment, found out a lot of things about Joseph Smith that are never mentioned inside the walls of the church. Your show and this other person uh, on YouTube got me using my brain a little bit because, as you know, in the church, members are taught not to question. He goes and talks about, he stumbles onto another uh, website, and he found that they talked about blood atonement. The church cannot escape all this stuff. In any case, I thank you. I thank you, my brother, for showing me the light, bringing me out of the darkness into the true and living Christ. Your brother in Christ, Alex. And then he writes, P.S., please don't use my real name. My wife is divorcing me after 23 years due to my newfound belief system. <laughs> Jesus said that there will be times when uh, his name would divide families, and this might be one of them. But I'm amazed because this person, you, it, you've probably had these conversations with Latter-day Saints. You think they will never round the corner. They will never give it up. And this is one of them. I'm just frankly blown away that he, Alex, has come around. Alex, I praise God with you for what's happened in your life. We're going to Jody in Salt Lake City. Jody, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi, Jody. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. I've got a question to ask. Yes. I'm, I'm listening to you probably for the second or third time. Okay. And I heard you talking about the Book of Mormon. I'm not a Mormon, by the way. Never have been. Could never be good enough to be a Mormon. Uh-huh. I'm a born-again, Jesus-believing Christian, okay? okay? Okay. I live for him. He died for me, okay? Awesome. 
So anyway, uh, I grew up in, in Salt Lake City, and um, I used to know a lot of stuff about the Mormon Church, and I'm 69 years old, and I've forgotten half the stuff I used to know. But anyway, I always learned, I learned that the Book of Mormon was written by a Protestant uh, minister, and I can't remember whether it's Presbyterian or Methodist, okay? Me, probably, I, Ethan Smith or Solomon Spaulding? I don't, it could be, I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. All I know is that it was it plagiarized by Joseph Smith yeah. and whatever, because I know he was a genius. Yeah. Joe Smith was an absolute phony baloney genius. Okay. Yeah. And um but what do you know about that? I know he died and then his wife was going to have it published or she did have it published, I'm not sure what I remember. And then she died and I always thought she was murdered, but maybe not. Uh, uh well uh the, the manuscript evidence you're talking about is there's two different sources regarding plagiarism from uh, fictional books. And one is Ethan Smith's view of the Hebrews. And there, there are aspects of that that uh, B.H. Roberts, church historian, said he was certain that these, these parallels cannot be uh, dismissed. And then there was Solomon Spaulding's, uh, what's the name of that book? Manuscript Found. And uh, that, is a, that is a theory that he borrowed from Solomon Spaulding's writings, too. Interestingly enough, um, it, was, uh, uh, it was Solomon Spaulding, I believe, attended Dartmouth. I think he attended Dartmouth, and there's a whole bunch of connections to the Smith family there. But it, I remember his, that name, but I didn't remember what the connection was. Yeah, but the thing with it is, is it, I don't think he plagiarized anything straight out. He just borrowed from all sorts of places, and we can find verbatim quotes from these places and thematic uh, approaches in, in the Book of Mormon that are taken from these other sources all over. Not just that, newspapers from his day, popular yeah. themes about what was going on. The It just goes on and on. But in those six, seven shows we did, uh, we addressed that completely. So okay, if you, how can I get hold of those shows? Do you have the internet? Yes, I do. Go to H-O-T-M, heartofthematter.tv, and you can watch them from there. Now I can get it when I, go, when I have to move, when I go back to Arizona? Well, Arizona is a little behind. I don't think they have uh, internet there. Yeah, but, yeah, they do. I, oh. I have the internet. Okay. I have the yeah. internet. I live in Lake Havasu. Oh, okay. And, and they have the, I have the internet. Yeah, check out there. the internet there in Arizona, and it will work. Okay, another thing I'd like to um, talk about is, okay? You know, Jody, uh, I've got three people, first-time callers, sitting waiting. I'm a, I'm, okay. Keep watching, okay. my friend. Well, God bless you, and keep on your work. Okay? God bless God's you. God's work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I have terrible luck with people named Katie, so I'm going to go. Oh, Katie's not on there. Line two, line four or one. We're going with... George in Salt Lake City. George, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. I'm sorry, George, you only have literally about 40 seconds. Mm -hmm. You're on the air. Uh, I want to know what the LDS uh, Church's thoughts were on uh, Judgment Day, if uh, that everybody in heaven and hell would be judged again. And what are their thoughts on the lake of fire where you are cast and cease to exist and also, if they believe in a four horsemen of the apocalypse. They don't talk much about Revelation. They don't think it can be easily understood. As far as the burning lake of fire, they believe that it's going to be a, 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 an internal torment for what you could have done. That they don't believe in a literal fire burning hell. They believe in an inner turmoil that says, geez, I could have made it to the terrestrial kingdom or the celestial kingdom if I had only done this or that. George, we are absolutely out of time. Thank you for calling. Sorry for the short notice. Please tune in next week when we're going to pick up one of the most interesting stories of Mormon history, Mountain Meadows Massacre. See you then. Job I'm going to break. I'm going to break my I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run I'm gonna break I'm gonna break my Gonna break my rusty cage and run
break my, gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break, I'm gonna break my, gonna break my rusty cage. Oh, yeah.